One, two. Can you hear me? Excellent. Um, hopefully that won't fall. There we go. <laughs> Wonderful. It's so good to be here this afternoon with you all. And hello to everybody watching at home on the live stream as well. It's good to be together on this Lord's Day. Uh, before I begin, let's pray. And then we're going to be opening up our Bibles to 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 15 this afternoon. Let's just take a moment in prayer, shall we, as we come to hear the Word of God today. Father God, we, we don't want to come together and do church in a fleshly, just carnal way. Lord, we want to come to church, as Pete said earlier, to, to share not only in fellowship, but also in these incredible things that we get to do, such as sharing the Lord's Supper in which we know there is a presence of Christ, however we might interpret that. We recognize its importance in our gathering. We also recognize the importance of standing under the Word of God. And Lord, as we come to hear your Word today, our prayer is that we wouldn't treat it in a carnal, fleshly manner, as if this was just some other word written by human authors, but instead we recognize Lord, that this is a surpassing word. This is a word which transcends culture, which transcends time, which doesn't change because it is not a, a finite word, but it is an infinite word. It is the word of God, and it is able to pierce to the division of soul and soul, spirit and spirit. And Lord, it can speak to us. It can reflect the attitude and desires of our hearts today. We recognize this is a supernatural, divine word that we hear from today. So, Lord, position us, we pray. Let us right now get in a place where we're ready to hear from the Word of God. Um, and Lord, that we would uh, welcome the Spirit today even as He comes and He begins to appropriate whatever we hear in our lives. We pray we wouldn't leave this hall or leave this live stream the same way that we entered it. Uh, but we would be changed from one degree of glory to another by the power of Your Word and Your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And also, Lord, may I not get in the way of the Word of God today. I pray that as uh, you have given me the great honor of preaching your Word, that I would not stand in the way of that Word, and that nothing in me would uh, create any filter which would lead others astray. But instead, Lord, you would help me uh, to preach this Word as it is. I pray all this in the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. So we're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. I think now we have been in this study of 1 John something like 25 weeks, and uh, we're drawing to a close of our study of 1 John. It's been amazing. I'm sure you'll all agree. And there are things in this letter that I didn't think we'd be covering as a church that have kind of stuck out and surprised me, if I'm honest, uh, from this letter, which have been wonderful. And so we're drawing to the close of the fifth chapter, the very final chapter of First John. And today's verses are 13 through 15. I am reading from the English Standard Version. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. 
Thanks be to God. Well, if you're reading today from the King James Version or the New King James, you might have uh, an extra line there at the end of verse 15. Sorry, at the end of verse 13, rather. Uh, It will read something like this. And that you may continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, as Pete covered the other week, this is something known as a textual variant. Before you switch off and get bored with what I'm about to say and count yourself out and say, I don't need to know this, yes, you do. Yes, you do, okay? It's important for you in your Christian witness that you know how your Bible arrived in your hands as it does. And this is because people like Muslims, for example, will ask this question of you. It will be one of the things of most interest to them is how your Bible came to be your Bible. How is it that it arrived in your hand in this English translation that you have? Did it magically drop out of thin air? Did the Holy Spirit scribe it himself by his sovereign decree? It's important for us to know how these things happened so that we, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, are ready to give a reasoned defense for the hope that is within us. We need to know this stuff, okay? So what is a textual variant? What's a textual variant? Get your school hats on. A textual variant is simply this, a variation in the text of the manuscripts, okay? So let me explain further what I mean by manuscripts. There are 5,000, 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. What I mean by that, the manuscript, is it's a, a, a fragment, quite often, of papyrus with the New Testament written on, most often in Greek, in these 5,000 copies. The earliest copies are in Greek. There are a further 19,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in other languages. We have them in all kinds of languages, forms of Syriac. Um, we have them in Aramaic. We have them in lots of different other languages. So altogether, there are 25,000 fragments of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. And a textual variant is simply where there is a slight variation between one manuscript and another. And often, uh, these manuscripts as well, as I say, they're very small, they're very ancient, they're often just fragments. In fact, the earliest um, manuscript that we have of the Gospel of John dates from around 120 to 130 AD, if you ask, whoever you ask, Um, and it's a tiny little fragment of John's Gospel, Uh, but it's the earliest that we have. And it's through these 25,000 manuscripts, and in particular the 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we were able to piece together the New Testament document as it is today. Now, vast majority of these textual variants, um, you'll often hear as critics of the Bible will say things like, well, there are so many variations across the Bible manuscripts, across the New Testament manuscripts. How on earth can you know what the original said? Because the truth is we don't have a copy of the whole New Testament signed by the Holy Spirit. We don't have a copy of Mark's Gospel, original, written by Mark. Here you go, here's the date. We don't have that. Instead, we have early copies of the originals. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? So, critics have made a lot of that. Critics have made a lot of that, and they've said, well, you have variations. In fact, you have thousands of variations across the 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So how can you possibly know what the original said if there are so many 
differences amongst the manuscripts. Now, what they say, in a sense, is true. There are lots of variations. And now, as Christians, we need to readily accept that, okay? Before you start throwing things at me and calling me a heretic, the work of Dr. Craig Blomberg, who is a New Testament scholar, is fantastic in this area. And these thousands of variations, by and large, and I'm talking about nearly 99% of these variations, are not completely different verses. They're not completely different pericopes and passages about what Jesus really did. And oh, there's a, there's an, there's a, there's a different version here where he has a wife. And there's, it's not like that. It's not Dan Brown style, okay? The vast majority of these variations are actually slips of the pen. They're slips of the pen, differences in spelling. And if you read in the Greek, often it's the change in word order. Okay, so in your Bible, uh, you're reading the English, but in the Greek versions, uh, sometimes you'll see words kind of backed up slightly differently. But in the Greek, that doesn't make too much difference because Greek works differently than English. Word order matters less. And so these are the vast majority of the variations that we read about. They are literally just grammatical differences, spelling differences, word order differences. They're not entirely different truths, okay? And as Craig Blomberg said, when you compare all 25,000 there or thereabouts manuscripts, there is not one major Christian doctrine that rests on any textual variant. And across the whole um, gamut of all of the variant, um, of all of the manuscripts, sorry, they are 99% the same. They're 99% identical. There are just many variations, slight slips of the pen, scribal errors, because of course back in the day it was the scribes who were trained in the uh, skills of writing that would write down what was dictated to them. And so there's a lot made of variations, but really it's not that big of a deal. And actually it works in favor of the New Testament, of us believing that the New Testament really is reliable. As I said, it's important for us to know this so that we're not caught out by skeptics of the Bible, we're not hoodwinked, and so that we've got a reason to answer for to our Muslim friends who might say, well, we think that your text is corrupted, which is often the argument you'll hear, isn't it? If you've ever witnessed to a Muslim, you can't believe what's in your Bible. It's corrupted. It's been changed over hundreds of years. And you can then give a reasoned defense uh, against that argument. So... I think it is important to know, number one, that no major Christian doctrine, no big truth about Jesus hangs on a disputed text. It just isn't the case. Uh, and also true to say that in a day before the printing press, remember there was no printing press. There was no internet where I could copy and paste and send it to a friend back in the first century. Everything has to be painstakingly copied by hand. It's remarkable that these manuscripts are 99 points, uh, 99% the same as one another. Imagine that. That is an incredible attention to detail amongst the scribes and amongst the manuscripts. They're 99% the same. That means that in this manuscript here, you have the same reading of 1 John 5 as in, you know, 24.9 thousand others, right? It's incredible. But it is good, I think, it is good for us as Christians to know what some of perhaps the bigger textual variants are, again, so we're not caught out. This isn't a secret in your English Bibles. Often at the bottom of the page you will have things called footnotes, and your footnotes will tell you where there is a slight variation in the text. 
For example, there is an ending to the Gospel of Mark, which we're studying at the moment. How many of you know about the long ending in the Gospel of Mark? Yes, several of you know. From verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16, um, they're included in your Bible because a great many of the manuscripts include them. However, the earliest manuscripts of Mark's Gospel do not include verses 9 to 20 of the final chapter. So that is a textual variant. Who knows the other big textual variant that I'm about to tell you? The woman caught in adultery. The story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8 is actually a textual variant. It's not included in the earliest manuscript copies of John's Gospel. Does that mean you shouldn't use it? No, uh, because it's included in lots of other manuscript copies. It was in the Byzantine text, which comes slightly later, but in the very earliest copies, it doesn't appear. Um, but we include it in our English translations because so many of the manuscripts do include it that the translators believe it is um, worth putting into the text of Scripture. So we can stand on the Word of God. It is attested by 25,000 manuscripts. No other ancient document comes close to the New Testament in terms of the amount of manuscripts that we have. I think the next closest is Homer's Iliad, which has... 673 manuscript copies. Uh, well, what's the benefit of all this waffle grain? Why am I telling you this? Well, it, it simply means this. It means this. We can be very confident about what the original documents of the New Testament said because we have such an, um, an incredible amount of evidence to support uh, 25,000 manuscripts. We know when we compare across those documents, we know that we can be reasonably confident, well, very confident, in fact, what the original said. Uh, if we have, of course, only two manuscripts of one text, and one says one thing and the other says the other, how do we know what the original reading was? Well, we have to guess. Whereas in the New Testament, you know, if we have, I don't know, 24,000 readings of one particular verse in a certain way, and just 1,000 of readings in another manner, we're going to trust the 24,000 over the 1,000, aren't we? Um, so... This is what we call textual criticism. This is important, I think, for Christians to know about. Um, and especially when we think about the, the New King James Version, uh, it's helpful for us to know this because the New King James um, is a great translation. I don't bash on the King James. I have a New King James. Um, it was kind of translated into English from a 16th century Greek New Testament um, called the Textus Receptus which was put together essentially by a guy called Erasmus. Very, very clever guy. Did a great job um, of translating the Greek manuscripts into a, a New Testament. But uh, back in the 16th century, Erasmus didn't have as many manuscripts to play with as we do now. Um, so he was drawing from, from fewer manuscripts. And so what we find sometimes is the King James records things that if you were to read a, an ESV or an NIV or an NASB or an NLT, wouldn't be in there because ESV, NLT, NIV are based upon the critical text. By the critical text, I mean things like my, I have a Greek New Testament somewhere, which is NA28, the Nestle Allen 28, which draws from um, a much, much larger uh, pool of Greek manuscripts to try and get a more accurate reading. That does not mean you should stop reading in New King James, because it's still very good, but it drew from fewer manuscripts. Um, probably going to get King's James only people hunting me down now, but 
You know what I'm saying? It's important to know how your translation arrived in your hands, okay? So the Holy Spirit chose for the Scriptures to be transmitted this way. That's the way that, that God chose to get the Bible in your hand. He didn't drop it out from heaven. Uh, it w- he chose to co-labor with man through hundreds and hundreds of years of people painstakingly copying down and copying down and copying down and transmitting to the next generation. That's how the Holy Spirit got the Bible in your hands. And when you look historically at how the Bible was put together, it is different than any other text. It's incredible. It's remarkable. So that version uh, of verse 13 with the longer ending, I would say it's not the best reading. Uh, It's a minority reading. And the final bit of verse 13, I think when you look across the whole of the 25 manuscripts, 25,000 manuscripts, you'll find that the ESV translates it well, NLT, NIV. I think that would be the more reliable reading. But even so, the end of the King James verse 13 doesn't really change anything about the text, does it? It's essentially a repetition. It's like, hey, to those who believe in the name of Jesus, we pray that you might go on believing in the name of Jesus. It doesn't, you see what I mean? It doesn't really change the meaning of the text. It's just a slight addition. So let's move on from the technical stuff. When we read these verses... We are revisiting something that John, throughout the whole of this letter, really wants for those believers to have, and that is assurance. Assurance. John wants these believers to know certain things, to have confidence about their faith. And this is exactly what he's talking about in these few verses. Today, he wants us to have assurance that, number one, that we have eternal life. And secondly, he wants us to have assurance that our prayers are heard and answered. So let's begin with looking at eternal life. Is eternal life something that you think about all too regularly? Is it something that you have assurance of? Do you think of it as being your possession? I don't think that many Christians do. I don't think it's something that we dwell on all too often. I could try and figure out why that is. I'm sure there are many reasons for that. Um, But certainly in the first century, certainly in the early church, there was a much bigger focus on heaven than there is now. There is a bigger focus on the next life, the new heaven, the new earth. Um, They put a lot of stock and hope in the world to come. And I would think, you know, we want to take notice of that. I think in today's church, there is a lot of emphasis on the kingdom now, which is true. We want to be seeing heaven come to earth. We want to pray as the Lord taught us, you know, Lord, we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that happen. But at the same time, I think we're robbing ourselves, to be honest, of a lot of comfort and a lot of hope and a lot of reassurance by not thinking about heaven more. Do you ever think that? That your eternal destination, the place where you will spend the rest of your life, uh, we don't really think about it, do we? Whereas when I get on a train and I have a ticket and I'm going down to London, I think about London, don't I? I I think where I will go there. I think about perhaps things I might go and see. I'll, I'll get excited about perhaps going and walking around St. James's Park, as I like to do, and seeing the fountains. Or, you know, going walking through Knightsbridge, pretending I'm super rich. 
These are things that I like to do. It's very vain and silly, but this, this is fun. I like to visualize what I'll do. But as Christians, we are, uh, I'm talking specifically to you as Christians, you are on a one-way ticket to heaven. You're on a one-way ticket to heaven. The most amazing place imaginable. But how often do you think about your destination? In comparison to the time, whether I can call it time, that you'll spend in heaven, this life you have on earth is literally the blink of an eye. It's not even that. It's nothing. But we spend, I would say, 99.9% of our time worrying about the cares of this life. And no time thinking about our eternal destiny. You ever think of that? John wants us to have assurance about going to heaven. He wants us to have assurance of eternal life as our possession, as something that's real, not ethereal. Something that's real. I think that the reason why we don't dwell on heaven and don't dwell on eternal life more like I said, it's probably down to a number of things. I'm going to just talk about a couple because I think these are things I've found in my own experience why I haven't been more excited about heaven, being very honest. I think, number one, we think it might be boring. I do. I, th- I think many Christians worry and are perturbed by the fact that they think, what if it's boring, though? You know? Like, what if I'm just sat on a cloud with a harp? we can't visualize it and we worry that it might be tedious. But I think what's important to say is that eternal life is not simply life as we know it now extended eternally, is it? It's not life like we know it now forever. I don't think anybody could endure that. Life in a sinful, broken world ad infinitum. I'm not sure that's something that I would want, but we're not talking about that when we talk about eternal life. We're not talking about that kind of a life. We're talking about being eternally united with Christ. It's not to have our own life forever. It's to have His life forever. It's to share in God's life forever. Guess what? In God's life, is there any sin? Is there any iniquity? Is there any darkness? Is there any sickness, frustration, lack? Frustration is a horrible, horrible thing. It's wanting something you don't have and not wanting the things you do have, isn't it? I think that was Elizabeth Elliot's definition of suffering, was to want things you don't have and not want things you do have. I think that's quite a good definition. There's none of that in the life that you will have for eternity. You see, God is never frustrated, is he? Jesus is never found wanting something he does not have. And so when we enter into eternity, guess what? You'll never have that feeling of wanting something you can't have. You'll never have that horrible urge to do something that you know is wrong. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The horrible urge to do something that you know in your spirit is not right. You'll never have to fight temptation to sin. You'll never have to witness a child sicken and die. You'll never have to see suffering and pain. He will wipe away every tear 
You'll never have to wake up in the morning and feel your body groan and ache. Eternal life is to share in his perfect life, isn't it? Now, when we think of that, doesn't it seem a more appealing destination? There's only endless fulfillment. God is never frustrated, brothers and sisters. God is never found wanting something and desiring something that he cannot have. That is the life that we will have with him. I think secondly, and this follows on from what I've just said, the other reason why I don't think we really get excited about heaven is that we don't have a biblical view of heaven. We don't have a biblical view of heaven. Like I said earlier, we sort of have this imagery of, you know, perhaps a a toga on a cloud with a harp, and we think, okay, well, maybe somehow uh, I'm going to get some harp lessons from an angel or something, and then we'll spend eternity learning to to play harp on a cloud somewhere. We'll be separated, but somehow it will be fulfilling. You know, I'm sure it will. Well, that's just simply not a biblical view of heaven. It's not a biblical view of heaven. You will not be in heaven, and I'm talking about the destination heaven, the new city, uh, new Jerusalem. You will not be a disembodied spirit. You will not be. You will have a body. You will be resurrected in in a similar body to the one that Jesus was resurrected in. What did Jesus do when he came back in his resurrected body? He ate some good food. Hallelujah. There will be food in the new Jerusalem. You will eat your body will be able to have sensations. It will not be as if you're a disembodied spirit in heaven. You know? So I think there's lots of things to look forward to. There will be purpose. Uh, there will be community. We'll be together with other believers. There'll be activity. Uh, most importantly, there'll be God. There will be God. You know, This is stuff that we struggle to visualize. And I think for that reason, we don't get as excited as we should about the prospect of eternal life. You know, I think as well, partly that's down to something we call sin. (laughs) It's down to sin. It's down to the fact that although we are Christians and we have been set free, we have died a death to sin through Christ, we still carry in our physical bodies um, the remnant of sin. We carry the flesh with us. And so, for example, that, that can sometimes have an impact on the way we see things, That's why we find a continual battling with sin, uh, not only with the devil, but also with our own flesh. There's a battle, like I talked about a few weeks ago, that is much closer to home. There's a wrestle with yourself against sin. And I think partly it's our flesh and our sinfulness that, that prevents us from getting as excited about heaven as we should. But brothers and sisters, I want for us to get into Revelation. I want for us to read about heaven, to start to picture that destination and to be excited for the day when we will live without sin, when we will live without pain, when we will live without suffering, and when we will enjoy his presence fully uh, without interruption. Amen. The next thing that John wants for us to have assurance about is prayer. John wants us to have a confidence in in prayer. Sorry, The word confidence is actually derived from a Latin word, confide. Anybody know what that might mean? Well, if you know Spanish, con is with, fide is faith. So he wants us to pray with faith, with confidence. That's what the word confidence means, con fide, with faith. I think it was E.M. Bounds. How many of you read 
any EM bounds. I would highly recommend you get EM bounds, collected works on prayer, phenomenal stuff. But EM Browns, EM bounds rather said that prayer is the language of faith. Prayer is the language of faith. So only those with faith will pray. You can't pray without faith. It's impossible. You need to have faith, which is simply this, an understanding that when I pray, there is a God who answers. I have lack. He has everything. Therefore, I'm going to stretch out in prayer. Faithless people don't pray, except when the airplane starts kind of experiencing turbulence, and then you'll see people start to do all kinds of weird things. In fact, one of my good friends from university sent me a good meme the other day, <laughs> which was, uh, is a, a picture of a body with some kind of spirit leaving it. And he said, this is the atheism leaving my body as the, pl- as the plane goes through turbulence, you know. So <laughs> but prayer requires faith. It is the language of faith. So when we pray with faith, as John is saying, or as parasia, which is the word in Greek, also translated boldness, when we pray with faith, what does that look like? When you pray with a confidence, with a boldness, how's that going to look? Well, I think certainly it means that we're not going to hang back. We're not going to worry about approaching God, but we're going to bother Him in a very childlike and holy way, of course. But we're going to bother God with our requests. We're going to start talking to God, and we're not going to worry about perhaps whether our requests are too small, uh, insignificant. We're going to be a God-botherer. And (laughs) I think also this thought of being confident in prayer that John mentions is not disconnected from what he's already said. It's not disconnected from what we've just read in verse 13 about knowing that we have and possess eternal life. He's actually saying this. If we know that we're going to spend eternity with God, then our praying ought to be changed Our prayer life ought to be changed. If we know we'll spend eternity with God, that he's chosen us for him, he's chosen us for himself to spend eternity with us. If if somebody, like in marriage, if somebody tells you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, you know, I am going to drop everything and I'm going to come after you. I want to spend my life with you. I make my commitment that, you know, sickness and death, you know, till death do us part rather, I'm yours. Do you think you then have confidence to believe that this person cares about what's going on in your life? I think you've got a reasonable amount of confidence to believe that that individual cares a great deal about you and is interested in what's happening. And so John is saying this, if we know that God has chosen us to spend eternity with him, how much more do we know that when we ask of him, he's going to hear it? He has chosen you as his buddy for eternity to use colloquial English. He's chosen you out of all he's created to cast his love upon you, to set his love on you, and to spend eternity with you. So how much more will we have confidence in prayer? Think of it in a worldly sense. You know, I'm a dad, I've got two girls. My kids know that they can approach me with confidence, right? They don't second guess whether to ask daddy for a snack. And this is how we're to be with God. We're to approach him as a father. He's our heavenly father. We can approach him with our requests with confidence because we're not praying to some far-off, distant God. We're not praying to somebody who actually can't help us. We're praying to a father in heaven who can do 
all things. And more than that, he wants to do all things for you. As the Bible says, if he didn't hold back his son from you, what else is he going to hold back from you? Nothing. No good thing. Now, even though it's true in our prayer life that we approach God with boldness, with parasia, as the Greek is, or with confidence, even though it's true we approach with boldness, John also says this. He says, ask. Okay, you see you see that? It says, this is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So in prayer, there is an asking. There is an asking. There's a petitioning that must take place. So brothers and sisters, when we pray, we are what? We are asking. Now, although my kids approach me with confidence, particularly early in the morning when I've just woken up, even though they approach with confidence, they still have to ask me for what they want. For example, my youngest doesn't come in and say, I just declare and decree a snack to come forth immediately, thus saith the Lord. She comes in and says, Daddy, please can I have a snack? Right? <laughs> Prayer is asking. It's relational. It would be weird if my daughter came in and sort of spoke through me and instead of asking, just begun to decree things into existence, I would look at her and think, are you okay? Is everything okay? But this is how many Christians treat prayer, right? The essence of prayer is faith, but it's also a recognition of something. Prayer is a recognition of something. I want you to understand this. Just try and track with me for a minute. Prayer is a recognition both of God's nature and his ability and of ours. Prayer is a recognition of God's nature and ability and also of our nature and ability. It is a dual recognition of those two realities. Inasmuch as God is God, you are not. God is mighty, you are not. God is all-powerful, you are not. Do you see this? That's what prayer is a recognition of. We need God to intervene. So therefore, we ask. Prayer is humble, brothers and sisters. Prayer asks of God. It makes supplication. It petitions a loving and heavenly Father. It does it confidently, yes. But not because of entitlement, right? Not because there's something in me that forces the hand of God, but because we know something about to whom we are praying. We know that he's full of grace, right? He doesn't despise me in my form, in my sinfulness. He has grace upon me. I know that he is loving. I say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We read earlier in this same book that God is love, right? He covers my sin. He allows me to come into his presence. Think about the passage we talked about. I think it was midweek where when Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple is rent. It's rent in two. 
And now when I enter in prayer, I don't have to come in with bells around my ankles for fear of dying in the presence. I enter in through Jesus. You enter in in prayer through Jesus, through the one who intercedes for you. And therefore, you can have boldness because he's loving. He's gracious. Okay? We enter in with boldness and we ask with humility, with boldness, not with boldness because of something in me, but because of something about him. Yet sadly for some, particularly uh, in these days, what's known as the word of faith movement, uh, prayer has become less about asking and more about declaring. Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with opening your Bible and declaring the truths of Scripture. There is a lot of good to opening your Bible and declaring the promises of God to His children. That is a good thing to do. However, it is not a replacement for prayer. It's not a replacement for prayer. In fact, some in the Word of Faith movement, which would be people such as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and more, simply asking in prayer to them would signify a lack of faith. Because they would say, you don't need to ask. You've already got it. God's given it. All you need to do is appropriate it. I'll just read you a quote to prove it so that I'm not slandering. I don't want to do that. But Kenneth Hagin said this in his session, you can have what you say. Quote, you can have whatever you say. You always get in life what you believe for and what you say. Do you? If that was true, I would be living a different life right now. <laughs> right? Like I said, there's a place for declaring the promises of God. There's a place for prophesying Scripture over situations. Hallelujah. Glory to God for that. But we must remember that Scripture teaches that prayer asks of God. It doesn't decree of God. It doesn't tell God what to do. It asks. It's relational. It's not simple. You can't boil prayer down to decreeing and declaration. Only prayer, the only prayer that asks of God is the only prayer that has any power. How can I prove this to you? Well, the Lord's Prayer. The disciples asked Jesus how to pray, didn't they? Did Jesus turn around and say, just say this. I declare my daily bread to come immediately, thus saith the Lord. No. He said, give us this day our daily bread. Hallelujah. Prayer involves asking. And if we say that it doesn't, we are missing something entirely about prayer. To move on, I think also important to notice here that this, this verse says we can ask anything, anything, anything according to the will of God. Now, I know sometimes that I felt silly asking God for certain things that seemed too insignificant. I don't know about you, but sometimes there's almost a level of embarrassment, you know. Um, we have this image somehow of God sitting behind a desk with this massive stack of prayers. Have you ever seen Bruce Almighty? You know the sort of scene I'm talking of. Um, and we're approaching him thinking, oh my goodness, I'm asking him to heal my guinea pig, oh Lord. <laughs> I can't trouble with him with this. You know, this is, there are people here who are praying for deliverance from their persecutors, and I'm here praying for my sick guinea pig. But listen, for those of you with sick guinea pigs, listen to this and be encouraged, Okay. 
Scripture says you can ask for anything, anything according to his will. There's nothing too insignificant. Now, if I, as a sinful being, know how to give good gifts to my daughters, if I, as a sinful father, care about what's happening in my girls' lives, you know, I care about whether her Sims game is broken down and she can't save it, I want to fix that. How much more does God care about even the smallest things in your life? Nothing is too insignificant to pray about. Don't be ashamed to pray for the little things. Your Father in heaven cares about even your smallest concerns. We're told by John, God hears these. He hears these prayers. And if he hears them, then we've received the things that we ask for. But brothers and sisters, there is one caveat. There is one caveat. Scripture says that he hears and answers the prayers that are according to whose will? According to his will. What's meant by his will here? Well, I think John Gill, who was an English pastor uh, at the 18th century, has a good answer. I think this refers to God's revealed will. So that could be uh, his law, his promises, his precepts. You know, if you read Psalm 119, That's the ballpark, you know, the precepts of God, the law of God, the principles of God, the promises of God. Um, So we're praying according to those. We're praying according to God's revealed will to us in the Holy Bible. That's what we pray according to. Amen? It's not according to our will. And equally, um, I think it's good that John Gill makes this distinction because theologians will talk about God having both a revealed will, which is found in the law, like I say, the promises of God in the scriptures, but he also, theologians would say, has a decretive will. Decretive is a word I'd never come across before, but essentially, that is his will which decrees all things which come to pass. In this church, we believe God is sovereign. We believe that's what the Bible teaches about his nature and character in that he ordains all things which come to pass, okay? So that is what theologians refer to as his decretive will. Now, we don't know that, do we? We don't know what's going to happen in 10 seconds' time. But we do know this. And so we pray according to what we know. We pray according to the revealed will of God. For example, let me explain. You know, he, God revealed to Moses that he was going to get Israel into the promised land, didn't he? He didn't reveal necessarily all of the circumstances by which that would happen. He didn't reveal to him about the Moabite women coming into the camp and leading many astray. He didn't reveal to him about Dathan and Abiram, about all the rebellions and the the spies. Some things came by prophecy, but some didn't, you know. But all was of the decrees and sovereign will of God. So let me just explain this a little further. In understanding this this truth about God, for example, the Westminster Confession says this, question, what are the decrees of God? And the answer comes, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. We have in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? Of his will, amen? So that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God. So in understanding this, brothers and sisters, 
I think it's important to recognize a couple of things. Everything that happens in this world, everything happens according to God's will. Let that sink in. That's not me trying to tell you that. It's certainly not what I have believed for my whole life. But in my honest assessment, I believe that's what the Bible teaches about God, is that he is absolutely sovereign, as Nebuchadnezzar uh, speaks about in Daniel chapter 4. He is God, not just in the heavens, but he does all he pleases here on earth also. There's nothing in this life that happens which God did not bring in to his sovereign decree. So, when we suffer, we might wonder, for example, how this could ever be within the will of God for our life since we know he's a good father. But isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that often these moments of suffering, they have been for me, but these moments of suffering that God brings or allows in our life, they are often the refining fires, aren't they? They are often the crucible into which he molds you into something more like Christ than you were before. Amen? He scrapes off the dross. He scrapes off the unbelief. He turns you into a praying individual. It's actually in suffering and in pain that God often does some of the most remarkable things in our lives. I mean, I know that's true in my life. I don't know about you. They are refining fires. Often they draw us closer in prayer to him. It's in these moments that he accelerates that journey of sanctification that we're all on. So I would say, number one, in trial and in suffering, we must, number one, have acceptance that this is part of God's decree for our life right now. Right now. You know, Christians in the first century A.D., went through some horrific things. It didn't mean they weren't praying against those things, but there was an acceptance that they had in those trials that I fear that today's church would not have. The Macedonian believers, for example, Paul talks about them having extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Paul doesn't turn around and say to them, well, if you'd only just spoken out what you wanted, you would have had it. He doesn't say, oh, these Macedonian believers, if they only had more faith to appropriate the principles and promises of God. No, actually, he praises them. He praises them in their extreme poverty. He makes a, he makes a big deal out of their generosity that they had little, but they gave much of that little. So in trying and suffering, firstly, brothers and sisters, we have to have an acceptance that we are not outside necessarily the will of God. These things have been ordained for a season in our lives. We don't always know in our finite minds what he's doing. But we do have confidence in his revealed will that he does what? He works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purposes. We know that from his revealed will. Equally, as well as accepting these things, God may also be calling you to pray about these things. If we are in a place of deep suffering and challenge, I'm not saying we just accept that and do nothing and have a kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. Sometimes God puts you into a crucible of pain and suffering so that your prayer life might grow stronger. 
We read about this, don't we, in John 9, as, uh, as Jesus passes by. He saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Can you see this? And he, Jesus answered, it, is not, sorry, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There was a purpose for that man's blindness. It wasn't random. There was a purpose. God's will was that he remain blind until Jesus come and heal him so that the glory of God might be made known. You know what? Suffering in life is to the glory of God. You have to think of it that way. I would recommend you read uh, Elizabeth Elliot's book. I'm reading that at the moment, just finishing it off. Suffering is never for nothing. It's never for nothing. It's to glorify the Lord. So when we ask and we pray, we do so according to what we know from Scripture, knowing at the same time that in suffering, sometimes God is pushing us into prayer. He's pushing us into confidence in prayer and believing that he will change things. Now more than ever in this season, suffering globally is forcing the body of Christ. Do you see it? I do. I see it in this church. He's pushing us as a fellowship into prayer. Suffering does this. And this is the truth of the way that God sometimes works with us in our, in our state in this, in this particular time. So prayer, concluding, is not simply, God, I declare that 2021 is my year. I declare a BMW to come immediately, a larger house, a younger wife. It's not, not the way it works. By the way, that's not my prayer. I promise it's not my prayer, babe. You see why that's not prayer? Number one, it's not asking. Number two, it's not according to his will. It's according to your will. Guess what Jesus says is in your heart? full of all kinds of bad stuff. The Bible doesn't say, just follow your heart, man. It says your heart is craven. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? So we pray according to whose will? His will, not our own will. And finally this. You know, I talked, I talked to Bucky about this before he came on, and, and I think he raised a good point, which is simply this, is that if it's true that John says, if we know he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have, possess, the requests that we've asked of him. How is it that we pray for things sometimes and they don't seem to happen? What do we do with seemingly unanswered prayer? Well, I think scripture is clear in that it says that we have the requests which we ask of him according to his will. Those are the prayers which we can be assured he will answer. Now, I believe as a Christian that this is absolutely true. I believe when I pray that I can confidently leave those prayers with him. In my head, I believe that. In my flesh, I don't always Many times, I'm sorry to say, and I repent, I treat God 
as though he were some kind of, <laughs> you know, incapable secretary where I have to keep reminding him, hi, God, it's me again. Yeah, just checking in. You know, I don't know if you heard me the first 267 times, but just in case you forgot, you know, I see you read the text, but you haven't responded, so I'm just going just gonna to drop you a reminder. You know, one of the greatest lessons that we can learn in prayer is the bit where we walk away and leave the thing we've prayed for in God's hands. And we let him get on with what he's doing. I think that's true, isn't it? It's the hardest thing to do sometimes. But I think there's a place for us to grow as a church in faith in that when we pray something, we don't stop praying. We still pray. Maybe we pray many times, but we don't pray out of frustration as if God forgot what we asked yesterday. We leave these things with him, knowing that we can be assured he cares. We can be assured he is answering those prayers and it will be to his glory. I don't know how much longer he might want me to walk in suffering. I don't know how much longer he might ask me to bear a particular health burden. We know that Paul asked many times, or three times rather, for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. But guess what God did in? God had a purpose in that. To glorify himself in a way pleasing to him. Did Paul's prayer get answered? Well, in a sense. Yeah. We have to realize that the story of redemption, the story that God is weaving in time, he has chosen us to play a part in. He's chosen us to play a part in his amazing story of glorifying himself in the redeeming of people who don't deserve it. And I would say this, is that in that journey walking with Jesus, we can't always know his intentions in every single moment. We can't always determine the moment, the hour, the second when a prayer might be answered. But the Bible tells us we can be absolutely assured that he hears it and that we have the things which we obtain. And it's in that tension we have to live, brothers and sisters. We must learn, I think, to have assurance and confidence that our Father in heaven cares deeply about us. And answers are every prayer, no matter how small. A stand. Mike, if you can come up. Father, I want to thank you we have learned so much from your word about prayer. I want to thank you that your son Jesus shows us in the Garden of Gethsemane the very depth of the issue that we're getting at today, which is, Lord, if it is possible, 
let this thing pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we pray that you would give us a confidence to approach you, to ask of you whatever, according to your will, we would like to ask because you're a loving father. We pray that we would also learn from Jesus to submit our own needs and desires sometimes to you and to recognize you might be doing something mighty through even the most difficult parts of our life. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would help us to grow in confidence in prayer, that we might have the courage to leave things with you. You are not an incompetent God. You are almighty, all-powerful, and you're a loving and graceful Father who cares very much about everything we pray for. So, Lord, we, we lay our prayers now before you one more time. We place our desires in front of you, and we thank you that these things are heard. These things are cared for by you. And we thank you that these things will be answered. We pray, give us strength in the time in between our praying and the answer that comes. We pray faith to know that you are working all things, every single thing, together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And I pray for all those watching today, right now, I pray for any of you who might be sick, in pain, in suffering, I pray for that you would be healed. We join our prayers together to pray for deliverance, for sickness, for suffering, from evil. We thank you. Sometimes, God, you force us into challenging positions so that we'd rise up in prayer. So although we accept everything is coming in a sense from the Lord, also we recognize sometimes you're pushing our prayer button and you're saying, don't allow this thing to stand. Don't allow this thing to govern you, but pray. I'm wanting you to pray. So we pray, Lord God, for any who are sick in our church today, for any who are in pain today, we pray be healed in the name of Jesus. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Perhaps, as Jesus said in John 9, it was for the glory of God that he waited to heal you until this moment. Hallelujah. And we pray, Lord, for anybody listening in today who has not known the Jesus that we speak of. We pray, Lord God, for another miracle. We pray that you would give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. A heart that is responding to you. A heart that can know you. Lord, we pray, regenerate and give new life to sinners today who are tuning in, in Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.